The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We are glad you're with us today. I am Reverend Dan Beckett here with co-host Reverend Michelle Vargas. Together, we share ways that spirituality and addiction recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your own recovery journey. Facebook users, you can send us your questions and comments anytime during the week from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Just click the send message button right below the banner. Be assured that your anonymity will always be respected. And please let us know what's on your mind. We'd love to hear from you. Today's show is titled Our True Identity. When we first get clean and sober, we may be overwhelmed by a sense of lost identity. Who am I if I don't drink, use, or fix others? The recovery journey offers an opportunity to heal this dismay and grow into an entirely new sense of ourselves. Today, we want to share our experience, strength, and hope on finding out who we really are and how our new identity can bring deep meaning to our lives and to our life's work. So we want to share with you today what we were like before, what happened, and what we are like now along with the spiritual tools or principles that help guide us through the tough times. We certainly hope you will find something in our experience that will be helpful to you in your own recovery journey. So today we're going to be talking about moving from that dismay of of, uh, identifying with our addiction to a life of meaning. And we're going to be talking about how we use the power or the principle of discovering our true identity, who we truly are. So we're talking about a feeling of dismay. You know, um, I remember that uh, early on in sobriety was kind of a jarring experience. Right. There were seemingly seemingly everything was the same, but at the same time, it felt like everything was different somehow. And it was very disconcerting for me. Um, One of the things that I quickly remember, and this doesn't happen so much anymore. I mean, it's certainly possible, but it doesn't end up happening a lot is that my experience of the world from the beginning is that it moved too fast for me. The world Mm. moved too fast and I could not keep up. And I remember for a long time thinking 
I need like an additional day in the week <laughs> to do absolutely nothing just to recover from the rest of the days in the week. Yeah. You know, part of it is because like many of us in addiction recovery, I'm, um, you know, hypersensitive. Uh, I don't know how else to, to put that. You know, we, we tend to, um, I know I get my feelings hurt easily and stuff like that. I'm just sensitive to the world. Mm-hmm. Part of it I know is just, you know, nothing to do with addiction. It's just the way I'm wired. I'm an introvert. I need to have recovery time. You know, even from taking a, a long drive somewhere, there's just so much input mm-hmm. from driving that um, I need silence after that. So dismay, one way that dismay showed up for me is an experience of the world that felt like it just moved too fast and I couldn't keep up. Yeah. Well, when you were reading the description of today's show and it said, you know, who am I if I don't drink? That's when I, that's what I thought of is like, I, my identity was so caught up with drinking. Um, when it was first suggested to me by a therapist that I try taking a few days of not drinking and just see what happened. I could, could have killed her. Could, could, could still kill her now. She's the one that got me into this whole mess. No, <laughs> you know, it's like, she said, well, why don't you just not drink for a few days and see how that feels? And she must've seen the like look of sheer terror on my face because her next sentence was, I think you need to go to AA. <laughs> because the idea of not drinking for a few days was like, and it, it wasn't that I I didn't, you know, I wasn't like technically physically addicted. I, you know, didn't have morning shakes, that kind of thing. It was it was more of the identity. It was like, well, but 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 then who what would I do? Who am I? <laughs> you know, I didn't it was it was such a part of my um my routine and my way of coping. And yeah, really I could say my identity, the way that I uh, saw myself in the world, you know, was this person that drank alcohol. And so um, when that was removed, you know, or when I removed that, when I stopped doing that, there was a sort of identity crisis of like, yeah. not only who am I, but what the heck do I do with myself now? You know, because so much of my time had gone into, and it wasn't just the drinking, it was the planning for the drinking. You know, it was like, you know, I, I, well, anyway, I, I had to, I had this whole routine where I had to get all these things done and then I would reward myself with drinking and I was a super perfectionist. I would clean my house top to bottom and then, you know, pull out the bottle of Chardonnay and sit there in my clean house and drink it. And, you know, this whole, (laughs) I had this whole life built around alcohol. So, you know, when we remove that principal addiction that is really um, running our lives and taking up so much of our time and psychic energy, it can really feel like a crisis of identity. Absolutely. But we get through that phase. That's just you know, it is definitely an experience, but it doesn't last forever. Right, it doesn't. And, you know, we say in the in the rooms, don't quit before the miracle. Yes. Almost as if there's a miracle. Well, there's a whole series of miracles in my yeah. experience. Don't quit before the next miracle. Or don't quit before the miracle that um, 
you know, completely changes my perspective. Yes. So I'm not even thinking about quitting. Right. You know, the, the sobriety program. Yeah, don't quit before the miracle. So as an outcome of my experience in the world, the world just moved too fast. I felt constantly under siege is a, is a word I would say. It's like the world was assaulting me somehow or other. There was too much going on. Mm-hmm. Now, I must have had some control over my own schedule, yes. <laughs> uh, and so you, I could ask, you know, well, why don't I do less, fewer things? It, it's not like I was doing it gazillion things. It's just like being out in the world, going to work, yeah. you know, was uh, enough for me in a day. But you know, I had ambitions, you know, when I was in my uh, early 20s, I was a what I guess I would call semi-professional musician. I mean, I play between four and 16 shows a month for years. Um, And I I made about half my money playing music and the other half doing computer kind of work. Uh And so just being out there in that way, which I absolutely loved doing. It's not, I'm not going to quit this thing that I love just so I can hide in my house and not feel like the world moves too fast. It's going to move too fast for me no matter what I'm doing. So I may as well do something fun. But I felt like I was under siege, you know, like somehow under attack uh, from the world and there was too much going on. And so that's just, you know, more more of a similar source of dismay for me generally in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I began to disentangle my identity from my drinking, um, I began to uncover what uh, the identity that I had constructed for myself and that it wasn't really a very good one in terms of how I felt about myself. Um, I had a lot of feelings of uh, not being worthy, uh, not being good enough. Um, I was very based on uh, my, my self identity was very based on my achievement. I've talked about this a lot, you know, it's very achievement oriented. Um, those things, you know, getting a degree, getting honors, whatever these types of things um, helped me to assuage a little bit these horrible feelings of worthlessness or unworthiness that I had, right? So so I had to achieve and get all these things in order to feel like I had some value because underneath it, I really didn't feel very valuable. And I was very shame-based. I had a lot of um, just not good feelings about myself. And I, and also in an attempt to cope with those feelings, I became a perfectionist. You know, that was, if I could just be perfect, everything would be okay. And so, of course it wasn't, but, and we can never be perfect. Right. And so when I wasn't able to be perfect, um, I would have a lot of shame about that. You know, I couldn't, couldn't even make mistakes. You know, I'd be terrified if I made a mistake. And, um, you know, I'll probably talk more about this later, but in the program, I learned that it was okay to make mistakes. People started telling me it's okay to make mistakes. Mistakes is how we learn. And, and it's okay to not be perfect. And you're, you're, you're just a human being. You're just, you know, a woman among people. You, you don't have to be, you know, so it's kind of like the, you know, 
we, we've talked about this before too, this combination of low self-esteem and overinflated ego at the same time. So, yeah, you know, it, so this idea of just being one of the bunch and being less than perfect was terrifying to me because I had such low self-esteem that I had to be perfect in order to feel okay about myself. Does that make sense? It's yeah. all very confusing and was very hard to maintain. But this idea of being imperfect and making mistakes and that that was totally okay and none of it went towards my worthiness. See, that was the thing. It's like, you know, this idea that I had inherent worth regardless of whether I, you know, whether I made a mistake or whether I achieved this or that accolade, that my worth, my identity and my worthiness was not based on that. That was a huge revelation to me, you know, it took me a long time and I still work on those things of not, not connecting my self-worth to my achievement and my performance. Yeah. I think we all, we're always sort of uh, moving closer to balance and it's not as if, um, you know, I, in, in a way, getting sober i became a different person but it was a different arrangement of a lot of the same things and i didn't literally you know go from being an introvert to an extrovert or you know what whatever that kind of stuff i just started showing up differently yeah. and uh so another part of my experience of dismay given that the world moved too fast and I felt like I was under siege and there was too much going on is that I needed some sense of like a safety zone, like some pl place of comfort that's not, um, you know, to to get away from that busyness. Now, I still do, but I do it in much more healthy ways. Right. And uh, you can probably going to guess one of the ways that I found comfort earlier in my life was, oh, if I drink alcohol, everything, everything's all of a sudden it's okay. It's you all know? okay. Not worried about it. It's fine. I feel good and fine if I'm, if I'm drinking. And so, um, you know, that worked for a while, as we say, it works till it doesn't. And, uh, I drank for about 30 years. Um, and it progressed over time from, you know, some weekends, I would say, at the very beginning to at one point it became daily. I probably drank daily for 15 years, wow. the second 15 years. So anyway, it quit working after a while. and It became the thing, yeah. you know. But let's move on because we've talked a lot here about this challenge of dismay and it's time to move out of the problem as we always do. It's a recovery principle we acknowledge and then let's move out of the problem and into the solution. So what is the solution? Well, in unity, we affirm that all of life is governed by spiritual principles. And the spiritual principle or principles that we have found helpful in moving out of that feeling of dismay, of, of not knowing our true identity, into a life of meaning, is really the second unity principle which states that our essence is of God and therefore we are inherently good. Of course, that follows from our first principle, which says that there is only one presence and one power, God the good. Then we are of that essence, therefore we are also inherently good. And it is this principle that helps us to know our true identity. But... What does it mean to say true identity? That seems like a weird concept. It certainly would have to me, especially early on. 
And to say that our essence is of God, I mean, I don't feel very divine. Uh, what does it even mean to say that, right? How can that? How can that even be? That's crazy talk. <laughs> you don't feel divine, Dan. Come on now. No, not all the time. Not even a little bit. <laughs> yes. Well. Okay. So you know, the first thing I learned, and I learned this in the program was that I was a child of God, and that was my true identity. Um, that was big for me. You know, I wasn't entirely sure what that meant, but I knew inherently that it felt extremely good. It felt very healing. Um, you know, this, this idea that uh, I had this divinity at my core that um, that human beings, it, it was just so different from what I had heard or picked up from the culture or learned in my church growing up, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of mixing recovery and unity because I found both around the same time and they were very similar. They were teaching me very similar things at the same time. And um, this idea that I was good, that human beings were essentially good, that we did bad things, but that we were essentially good at our core. That was our identity. Um, this is what drew me into unity because it felt so good. It was like, wow, you know, so different from like, oh, we're lowly sinners and, you know, we're not worthy and everything. It, it felt very um, affirming to me and very uplifting. And uh, that's what I began to work on understanding and accepting about myself and identifying with. Uh, that was big for me. And that, that took a really long time for me to grow into. I'm still growing into it. But first was the idea that there was a loving God. And then there was the idea that I was inherently good and that I was deeply loved by that one presence and one power that we often call God. Um, those things felt very good to me. And that's why I kept coming back to unity. You know, otherwise I, I didn't have much use for church at that point. But when I heard those things, I was like, hey, this feels good. That'll and, work. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. We, we talk, uh, it comes up a lot in unity circles about how just that experience of walking in and realizing, oh my gosh, I found my people. I didn't even know. I, there was a people that I needed to find, but right. here they are. Here we are all of a sudden. Yeah. So what does it mean to me to realize a true identity? Um, you kind of got at this. Probably the first thing is that I can see myself not as inherently broken or bad, but as inherently good, asterisk, with work to do. Yeah. Right? I mean, no, nobody is. I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not denying dysfunction, right? We're talking about my core underlying identity. I see the the work that I do, internal work, as um, kind of a layer of dysfunction or a layer of error thought mm -hmm. for the nerdy phrase that Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore would use. Yeah. Uh, but it's underneath that is where the divine spark or the divine light or the the core divine entity is. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a conflict for me to affirm 
that uh, underneath it all, I am a child of God, a divine presence or an expression of God in the world. And yeah, I've got some work to do. My, you know, my, my bright shining light has got mud all over it too. It shines through here and there. So my work is the mud, right? And without that, what's the, to me, what's the point? And, you know, it's not just, it makes it so my life is not just about me. It's much broader than that because that essential truth applies to everyone, right? right. Not just me. Yes. So we're all connected in that way, in a way that works for me. So seeing myself as not inherently broken, but as inherently good with work to do. Yeah. That works for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can say the exact same thing. It's, Here's the thing. I was so shame-based, so filled with these very deep, um, not conscious at all feelings of unworthiness and not being good enough that I could, I had to be perfect in order to even be able to, you know, remain upright. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like I had to be perfect because I was working against these forces inside me that felt like I was really bad. I was really nothing. And so to be less than perfect opened all those feelings up, right? The only reason I was able to even begin to be less than perfect was because I now had this new identity that I wasn't bad. I was inherently good, you know? And so I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like I I, I needed that in order to be able to look at the work, like you're saying, the work that needed to be done, the things about me that really needed, you know, a total overhaul. I couldn't look at those things until I had this loving higher power on board and was being taught that I was inherently good in order to take enough of the edge off of that pain for me to even be able to admit that I was less than perfect. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So my identity was all caught up with accolades and with being perfect. And I had to learn how to, you know, of course I wasn't perfect, but I was trying to live in the illusion that I was. And so I had to start learning to be less than perfect and to make mistakes and that I could make mistakes because I had this loving higher power that loved me anyway even when I made mistakes. And so that's what I needed. You know, it was, it was that love, that unconditional, total, total, complete, you know, everywhere present, infinite love of God that healed me enough that I could start to be less than perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. And I know that that this this way of being really works for many of us and I understand it doesn't work at all for some people mm-hmm. you know we, we're all wired differently and we can, I know that we can all find our way somehow or other so I was remembering it was coming into my mind of a, a, a verse from the apostle Paul so I had to look it up in Romans and it and this is Paul saying when we cry Abba father which Jesus had done Mm-hmm. Uh, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, yes. heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Yes. And so that is a statement that to me, when I read that, that points at what we're talking about. We're children mm-hmm. 
of a loving God, and we are heirs to whatever it is that this kingdom might be, this kingdom of God might be, but it sounds good, right? It's not, you know, I can't, for me, if, if, if the, if the rules of the game are I'm a turd, but I can't shine a turd, so I'm just supposed to work to be a little bit less of a turd. That, what is that? I mean, that doesn't yeah. work for me at all. And this concept of um, sort of the inherent goodness and the God presence deep within each and every person is, you know, we get that's found in Eastern. Um, theology and Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions. It, it, it's at the very core of them. Western religions tend to look at it uh, the other way. We're inherently broken yeah. and uh, we need to make our best effort to make up for that so that we can be okay in the next life. Um, yeah. Well, that doesn't work for me, but the Eastern way does work for me. Mm-hmm. I, I had it when I was in, uh, I did a stint in rehab because I did drink enough to have significant physical problems when I quit. I mean, it, it would have been foolish for me to quit on my own. I needed to quit in a supervised environment. Yeah. That's how good I was. That's how <laughs> I was deeply dedicated to my craft, okay? I can't help it. You excelled. <laughs> but there was a Catholic priest that I encountered uh, during there somewhere, and he had this saying that I loved from that point on. And he would just say very matter-of-factly, God don't make no junk. Yes. God don't make no junk. You're not a piece of I crap. Yeah. You're a child of God. And, yes. uh, you know, I don't know how deep his um, affinity for that ran, but that's exactly what I think we're talking about. God don't make no junk. God makes children of God. Absolutely. And so that that is what helped me come to find this new identity that I needed to have, which was an identity in God, you know, an identity based on who God was and who I was as a result of who God was. And that helped to reshape my identity. And like I say, it lifted my self-esteem and my feelings about myself enough because, like you say, I heard that exact same thing. You know, God made me and God don't make no junk. But, you know, that sounds, yeah. But, I mean, I knew what that meant was that I was inherently, you know, good. Um, but, like you said, with work to do. And I needed to feel good about my, good enough about myself before I could even start to do that work. Because otherwise it was too painful for me to look at, you yeah, know, right. I, I literally could, I could not even admit a mistake I had made. That's how painful it was for me to be less than perfect. Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy when I think, and I still am not fond of admitting my mistakes. It's not something I enjoy. Um, but I kept learning in the program that, you know, that was okay. It was okay to make well, mistakes. Let's, let's hold that thought because it is time for a short break. And when we come back, uh, we'll continue the conversation. We hope that you'll please stay with us. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back. We're glad you're with us today. If you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Dan Beckett here with co-host Reverend Michelle Vargas. We will resume our discussion in just a moment, but first we want to remind you that you can send us your questions and feedback anytime during the week from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Message us from there and let us know what's on your mind. So prior to the break, we were discussing first the dismay of not knowing who we were without our active addiction, and then we moved into talking about our true spiritual identity. So let's talk about now how discovering that true identity helped us to move into a life of deep meaning. Well, my first thought is that it gave me a path forward even in the most like difficult or challenging of circumstances. Yeah. So I'll use uh, an example. When I did not have this these tools, I did not have this understanding. It was many years uh, before I discovered any kind of spirituality that would ever work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I got divorced, as we were talking about before, in mm-hmm. Santa Cruz County, California. <laughs> and um, that was this horribly painful experience even though even though it was the very best outcome believe it or not mm-hmm. the only thing worse than that would have been staying yeah. in that relationship uh, you know she's the wonderful person but we're not a good couple moving forward she needed to go find her way and I needed to go find my way and it was the most painful thing I've ever been through and it was horrible and I hated it and it was terrible And uh, so I mentioned in the first part of the show that I drank about 30 years and about halfway through that began daily drinking. It was Mm -hmm. this divorce. That's when I began daily drinking because I'm looking for relief from this terrible emotional pain of a divorce. I mean, I don't care who you are. It's it's the worst. And um so I did not have these tools. I did not have a sense of myself as, um, you know, being a child of God or, or being good underneath it all. I just didn't think about that stuff at all. And so it was pretty terrible uh, not having any kind of spiritual sense of it. So I'll start with that. I know it's a counter example, right? <laughs> how, did, how did not realizing my true identity keep me in dismay? that's how it did and you know alcohol had been uh, my companion through and became from that point forward a daily companion yes well as i mentioned before i had these um these very um very deeply ingrained beliefs about myself, like you said, Charles Fillmore would call them error beliefs or error thought about not being lovable, not being good enough, not being inherently good, in fact, being inherently not good. And so I needed to heal all of those things. I still am working on healing them, you know, some 20, whatever years later. Um, But all of them were were and continue to be healed by this very thing that we're talking about by knowing my true identity in God. So I believed that, you know, deep inside, not on the outside, but very underneath it all, believed that I wasn't lovable. So the 
what helped me and continues to help me to heal from that belief is this idea of an infinitely loving God and that this God loved me. Um, <clears throat> I needed that, you know, I needed, I needed that unconditional love like a plant needs water, you know, and, um, and that's yeah. what helped me begin to get out from under that. And like I say, it's still, you know, these are like our real core error beliefs. They're tenacious, you know? Yes. I mean, you work on them your whole life and you, you know, try to lessen their grip on you, but I don't know that they ever a hundred percent go away. But I know that the antidote to feeling unlovable is knowing that God loves me. You know, human, the love of human beings is always going to be imperfect love, right? Because we're, we're human. Um, no one's ever going to love me perfectly and make me feel lovable. The only one I can get that love from is the higher power. And so that's what I worked on a lot in early recovery was, you know, time spent in prayer, connecting with God, getting to know what that relationship with God was like, what it, you know, how it worked. And that create began to create a life of meaning for me. Because before, my meaning was all derived from performance and achievement. Yeah. yeah. And so I had to create a whole different type of meaning for myself. But now I had a new identity in God and my the new thrust of my life was this meaning that I was a child of God and my purpose was to live into that. To be more fully that. Yeah. I was thinking of an example cuz as you shared about how sort of some of our core ways of being it's it's not like they go away but they don't need to, in my experience, because what has happened is my the way that, um, you know, sort of they fit into a different, bigger picture, I guess. So my example is uh, being angry. Right. And so I don't it's not a goal of mine to never be angry. I don't think that's reasonable. Um, but what I've discovered is that the further down this, you know, spiritual growth path, I'll call it. The, the longer I've been walking on this path, yeah, I'll still get angry about things, but I don't get as angry. I don't stay angry. Mm -hmm. And I have some perspective on what might be underneath that anger. And so it does not have control over me, right? Although I still experience it and that's fine. You know, I don't think that's a, a problem. Uh, one, another way I, I'm thinking that this understanding of true identity helps me move out of dismay and into meaning is that it helps me to look for and see the best in other people, right? Because I'm not the only child of God. Everybody <laughs> is a child of God. So everybody has this in them. And we know that whatever it is that we carry in our mind, you know, law of mind action, also known as uh, confirmation bias, whatever it is I'm looking <laughs> for is what I'm going to find. Why? Because I'm focused on it and I'm looking for that. So if I have an assumption that everyone uh, is inherently good and I am looking for the good in all people in all situations, it's not like I'm blind to the bad. You know, I'm not naive, right. um, but I do see the good in people much more readily. 
in yeah. the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, the only spiritual text you ever need, I read, <laughs> you are the light of the world. That's Matthew 5, 14. Jesus is telling those around him, you are the light of the world. That is not a small statement. I mean, that is that is quite a weighty and heavy thing to say. You are the light of the world. Well, he's talking to you and me and any of you who are listening to this. He's telling all of us yes. that we are the light of the world. And so in our here in our beloved Unity Home, we take that to heart. Right. And we that is the, that is the core assumption. That's the true identity in a sense. And and moving forward in life from there lets me do things like see the best in other people, look for it. So I'll find it. You know, there's another Sermon on the Mount quote in there about ask and you shall receive and all of that. Yes. So that's something that comes to mind how this helps me. Yes, I I was told in early recovery that I was totally loved by the higher power and that I was, you know, that I was a child of God and God loved me, you know, uh, unconditionally, but also that God loved everyone else the same exact way. Now, you know, I, <laughs> I remember hearing a speaker talk about this and it's like, I wanted to be special, you know, I wanted That's God right. to love just me because I still needed to be, I still sometimes need to be special. <laughs> so that was, you know, getting both, holding both of those things in my head at the same time, you know, that God infinitely loved me, but also infinitely loved you and everyone else as well. So that was a big concept, still can be a big concept because, you know, frankly, half of the time, I don't even know that other people exist. I'm so in my own head, you know, and I love people. I'm an extrovert. I adore people, but it takes a lot for me to get out of my own self-obsessed nature, you know, not because I'm a bad person, but just because I'm a selfish person. I'm a self-oriented person. Um, and so, you know, getting out of that and realizing that there was a whole world of other folks out there. And, and also, you know, as a, coming to see myself as inherently good, I then had to come to see everyone else as inherently good too. And this was just a whole different way of seeing the world because um, before I didn't know about the inherent goodness of human beings. And of course I saw all of the bad things around. I saw all of the evil acts and the, you know, bad things that people were doing. And I had a lot of fear, uh, you know, of, of something happening to me, of something being done to me because of this, probably because of a lot of movies that I watched and I read, I used to read a lot of horrible crime books and stuff. I don't do that now because I cannot fill my head with that. <laughs> right. I don't need to know, you know, all the various ways a serial killer can think of to kill you. I, I don't need to, I, I need to not have that stuff in my head because it produced a lot of fear in me. But again, the antidote for that fear was this new identity that I learned that human beings, despite the evil that you see or the, the bad things that we see happening, are inherently good. Yeah. That, that completely reworked my whole way of seeing the universe. Bad so, behavior doesn't mean bad essence. That's what right. we would say, right? 
That's yeah. a bad behavior. Bad behavior. We're not saying it's not. It is. No, we're not saying it's not there. But what we in unity, we don't assign it a power. You know, we don't like I had learned that there was this devil that you know was the uh, source of evil and that the devil was sort of almost of equal power as god and there was this battle between god and the devil that was sort of you know the world view i had you know somehow sucked up from the culture or whatever when i came into unity i learned or i was you know that the unity teaching was that there is no inherent evil power yes there are evil deeds people do bad things but there is no power of evil that is equal to god and that right. completely alleviated that fear that I'd had for many years. I've literally feared evil, basically. Yeah, and the, our definition, our working definition of evil and unity is anything that's not of God. Right? It's like darkness being seen as the absence of light instead of a thing unto itself. Thing unto itself and of course, exactly. scientists tell us that you know, darkness is just the absence of light. It's it's not a thing. It shows up as a thing. You know, if you I bump my toe in my room because it's dark, I mean, it's not just because I say, oh, darkness is just the absence of light doesn't mean I can all of a sudden see. Right. But it's a matter of focus. Yeah. Right. So evil is anything that's not of God. And I choose to focus on the things that are of God and to do my inner work around the things that I carry that are not. Yes. Right. So that I can hopefully those things will be healed by, uh, you know, by the presence of God or what have you. Mm -hmm. So another way that realizing this true identity helped me move from dismay to meaning is that um, it gives me a place to return to. Like no matter what's going on, it's not unlike in our uh, meditation practice, no matter what's going on, I might find myself you know, kind of way out of uh, spec or whatever, my mind has wandered or, um, you know, I'm doing something I really don't want to be doing or what have you, I can always return home, right? Because I know where home is. Just yeah. like in a meditation, I can return my attention to my breath because that's my chosen focus point. So there is always with me, and I'd heard it referred to uh, returning to that which called, right? Mm -hmm. So I, uh, something calling me, some divine essence calling me forward, I can always return to that thing, whatever that is. And so this concept of true identity that we're talking about helps me because it gives me a place to return to. Yeah. You know, I could just say return to God, whatever that means. Yes. You know, return to that way of seeing, return to... Um, that part of me that is light, like uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew there. So it gives me a place to get back to. It's like an anchoring point. Yes. When before, I think I was just like free floating in the universe with no no particular anchor. And it's it's really uncomfortable to feel untethered in the world. Exactly. That is exactly what I was just going to say, that this this belief in a higher power and this faith that I began to develop in early recovery um, gave me sort of a ground of being, you know, it gave, like you were saying, something to come back to. It gave me a home base, a home, you know, a safe 
a safe zone, yeah. <laughs> a safe place. Like you said, to just it grounded my life in something. And I felt just like you before I had that. Well, I didn't know it until I had it right. Then I realized that I hadn't had it before. <laughs> I had that untethered feeling. And I think that was a lot of what my fear of the boogeyman was about. I wasn't tethered to anything. Yeah. You know, I was just yeah. floating around out there. And this faith and this belief in a higher power that is all good gave me a ground, gave me a something to stand on, a place to begin from, a place to build on, a f really a foundation of my life. Um, and that, you know, that gave me new meaning. You know, it didn't lead to meaning. It gave me new meaning. That became the meaning of my life. So suddenly my life was not about, you know, trying to impress others or trying to be perfect or trying to achieve this or that or the other thing. My purpose in life became my relationship with God and, and developing that relationship with God and growing into more of what God had created me to be. That that continues to be my my purpose and how I find meaning in my life. I mean, I like I'm human. So like everyone else, I get caught up in all the trappings of being human. You know, my looks, my clothes, my family, my home, my work, everything. You know, it's not like I don't get caught up in that stuff. But underneath it, there's a remembering and a realization that all of that is just this human temporal stuff. It's not the very core of me. So if I get really upset over something that happens and I can get very caught up in the humanity, but there's a part of me that remembers that's just the human stuff, Michelle. That's not like you said, go to God, return to God. Does God really care? You know, if you're having a good hair day or not, you know, does <laughs> right. God really care whether you gave the perfect sermon or not, or hit those notes perfectly? God, does not care about any of that. That is not my identity in God. My identity in God is as yeah. a spiritual being. These things that I'm doing are just like this fun experience that we're having. They're just, you know, part of the human playground, you know, but they're not the, the whole truth. I don't want to say they're not the truth because I don't buy into like this whole thing is fake. It's not think, an illusion, right? No, it's not an illusion. It's not fake. It's just not the whole truth. It's like we're only seeing the surface. We're not seeing everything else that is underneath it. Yeah, so yeah. I can allow myself to get caught up in it and be in that human experience as long as I keep remembering that that's not the whole deal. Yeah, I love that. And I'm reminded that another way this helps me, this concept of true identity, is that it gives me a hope, you know, a reason for hope or to affirm that my best days are ahead of me. Yeah. I feel like that I can affirm that, uh, that that is a true statement whenever I decide or realize that it's a true statement. And having this, um, what we're calling true identity, child of God, um, you know, divine essence underneath all of it helps me to know that that's true and provides uh, basis for a faith in in the in that experience. Yeah. I don't mean a faith in any words or a faith in any one or even in any idea. I'm talking about faith in an experience mm -hmm. of God in my life that allows me to move forward. You know, yeah. wh whether it's because I have an idea that I think would be fun to do, a goal in life, a project, uh, a reason to 
you know, if I feel like I'm not really doing anything, a reason to look around and find something that would be fun, you know, whether it's career related or just like a hobby. You know, I started, I got a smoker grill not that long ago because it's a hobby, yeah. you know, and I joke, it keeps me out of the bars, which is, you know, partly a joke, but it's partly true too. Yeah. You know, I need things to be engaged in that are fun yeah. that I like, and it could be crossword puzzles or, you know, learning how to cook ribs or whatever on the, on the smoker. I got lots of things. Um, and this sense of uh, being a child of God helps me to have hope and move forward in faith in that way. Absolutely. Uh, the other piece that really helps me is once I have grounded my identity in being this child of God, um, then I can believe that everything that comes along in my life is for my growth and advancement. Yeah. Um, that has been so key to me because a lot of stuff has gone down in my life, you know, a lot of things. And uh, life isn't you know, life is in session, as they say, life is lifing. It's just lifing away. And, you know, things happen that uh, for the human self are very challenging, very challenging for me. And it helps if I can have that tiniest bit of remove from it. Like when I'm real caught up in something and just sort of stepping back and going, okay, Michelle, I know you're real caught up in this human experience right now, but remember what your true belief about things are is. And my true belief is that everything that shows up in this lifetime is ultimately for my highest good and ultimately for my growth um, and expansion. There's an opportunity in everything. That's what yes. I'm here to say. And that can help me when I'm in the midst of something really painful. It can really help me a lot because it, it gives it meaning. It gives it meaning. It's not just say, happening. I can't wait to see the good that comes out of this. Oh, that's awesome. As a affirmative statement about a troubling circumstance. That's well, awesome. We've said a whole lot about this topic, so let's step way back, if possible, and see if we can find a concise way to sum it up. So, Reverend Michelle... Uh, if someone came to you and asked, you know, give me the short version of uh, how can I discover my true identity like you're talking about? Yeah. I don't see it. Give me okay. some practical tools. I mean, this is my experience, okay? But for me, it's all about the relationship with the higher power because that's what gives me my identity. Um, so anything that furthers that connection and that relationship with God, with the higher power, that is how I find my identity. So making that relationship front and center in my life, um, time spent in nature, time spent in prayer and meditation, time spent in um, self-exploration, self awareness, you know, whether that's therapy or recovery or whatever kind of work, getting, you know, getting to know thyself, because God is both within and without, and getting to know myself is a way of getting to know God. And so just that relationship with God and relationship with the self and building that and working on that, that is how I find my identity. And it takes time. It takes a yeah, lot of exactly. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not, yeah. It's, it's an ongoing thing. It, it unfolds over time, I would say. 
Yes. And in my experience, it has. So my answer to that is how how could I discover my true identity? I don't I don't even see what you're talking about. Yeah. I would say it's centered on uh, contemplative prayer practice. Mm-hmm. Now, contemplative prayer practice can be as, as simple as a secular mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very simple thing. But if I am willing to keep returning to that place, um, what can happen? What does happen? Is that I began to I begin to realize that there is a difference between whatever the um, you know monkey thoughts in my mind, my monkey mind, my endless yeah. inner monologue. There's a difference between that and who I actually am, right. and that who I actually am is that spiritual peace and make it yes. central to life. That's what I would say is how to get started. Absolutely, I love that. Well, our affirmation for you today can help to ground you in what that true identity is. And so it goes like this. I embrace my identity as a unique expression of divine love. Once again, deep breath. I embrace my identity as a unique expression of divine love. That's a good one. Reverend Michelle is our affirmation master generator that was a great one well it's happened again you've given yourself the gift of another hour listening to spirit of recovery and we are grateful we hope that you found something in all of our palavering that will be genuinely helpful to you in your own recovery thank you reverend michelle as always for our discussion and thank you all who are listening to the podcast via spotify Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We bless you wherever you may be on your recovery journey. Yes, and listeners, as always, you can connect with us on our Facebook page throughout the week, Spirit of Recovery. Go ahead and drop us your thoughts and feedback and comments and such. And we invite you, of course, to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. And until then... Don't drink like my co-host. And don't drink like my co-host. Instead, have yourself a wonder-filled week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.